If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. I have uh, dubbed this psalm the Psalmonex Psalm. And the reason for that is because when I was a kid growing up, I used to watch a television show with my grandmother called Lawrence Welk. Anybody remember that? (laughs) You really remember it. Then you'll really remember this. Uh, One of the sponsors for the Lawrence Welk show was Psalmonex. And it went kind of like this. Their little catchphrase was, take Psalmonex tonight and sleep, safe and restful, sleep, sleep, sleep. Psalm 4, at the end of the chapter, what's David doing? He's sleeping. Now, my goal this morning is not to put you asleep by the end of this service. That's not the goal. But to help you to understand that David gives us a pattern for taking charge during a period of adversity. Now think about Psalm 4. There's two different opinions as to what this psalm was written out of. There's one opinion that believes that it's David's experience with Saul. Remember, David was anointed to be king of Israel, and Saul was the king of Israel, and Saul was having troubling dreams, and so someone recommended that David go and play his harp, or lyre, for King Saul, and King Saul picked up a javelin and threw it at David, and David was fleeing Saul, and wrote Psalm 4. There are others, another opinion, that Psalm 4 was written after Absalom, who was David's son, David was the king at the time, and his son Absalom went out to the city gates and began to say, David's not your king, I'm your king, David's a terrible human being, he's awful, and David fled for fear of what Absalom was going to do to him, his own son, and that he wrote Psalm 4. Whether it's Saul or Absalom, whatever the circumstance, you can see that there is a a great amount of adversity through which David is going. And in Psalm chapter 4, he gives us a, a pattern to emerge out of that adversity with a peace and an understanding of what God can do. And so let's look this morning at the pattern that assures us we can have rest despite the adversity that is around us. Look at the first verse of Psalm chapter 4. In Psalm chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. The first pattern that is established for us is to approach God respectfully. Approach God respectfully. In the opening, David does not make a demand. He does not say to God, deliver me, get me out of this. He doesn't demand anything from God. Instead, he approaches him respectfully. He approaches him like a son approaches his father. Uh, There is a relationship that is there. One writer said this about prayer. He says that prayer is the soul's sincere desire, unuttered or expressed. And that's what's happening here. David says, answer me when I call my righteous God. Hear my prayer. He's like a a son, and he starts with the highest court, right? He goes straight to God, because God is the one that can deliver the decision that is necessary to help him through this period of adversity, to bring him through this. And he also talks about God's qualifications. Notice what he says. He says, my righteous God, oh, my righteous God. Now, you may have the uh, American Standard Version or the King James Version. And in the King James Version, it reads like this, O God of my righteousness. And it makes it seem like David is basing his prayer upon his own integrity. 
I think if you look at the entire context and when we finish, I think you'll agree with me that that's not what David is doing. David is not saying, because of my righteousness, hear what I'm saying, Lord. Instead, he is saying, God, because you are righteous, I am coming to you for a right decision about what I'm going through. And he uses the the personal pronoun here. He says, my, talking about a personal relationship that David enjoys with God. I, I, I was uh, I, I teach school and we have devotions uh, on Wednesday mornings at the school where I teach. And several years ago, there was a teacher that was new to our school, and she was assigned the task of doing devotions uh, for our faculty. And um, she walks in and she, you know, gives all of these disclaimers about her life and where she's been and where she is and her relationship with the Lord and all those kinds of things like that. And uh, at the end of what we do normally is we have prayer requests and then the person prays. Well, when this person, it was their turn, it was their turn to pray. She took prayer requests, and this is how she started her prayer. She started her prayer. She goes, hey, God, um, this is Ellen. I know we don't usually talk unless there's a problem, (laughs) but today I, I need to ask you to help these people. I thought, what an interesting way to start your prayer. The only time you talk to God is when you have a problem. You see, David is talking about a relationship. My righteous God. He is in a relationship with God, and so therefore he feels very comfortable with going before him. You see, God is many things to us. One writer says this. He says, God is my righteousness, my author, my vindicator, my witness, my maintainer, my judge, my reward of righteousness. Let us always take our suit, not to the petty courts of human opinion, but into the superior court, the king's bench of heaven. David's security and identity is in the Lord. And he moves to him. And he says, Lord, answer my prayer. Listen to me. Notice what he says. As he approaches God in his righteous God, he says this. He says, give me relief from my distress. Literally, he says, God, grant me an avenue of exit. David, remember, was a great warrior, a great military guy. And he's using military terms here in verse 1. He says, give me relief from my distress. The idea of distress is I'm, I'm pinned in a corner. I'm, I'm surrounded and I'm pinned and I have no recourse. I'm kind of like hooked up like this. And when he uses this word, he says, uh, give me relief. He is literally saying, make me a space here. Give me some space is what he's saying. You've experienced that, right? Things are kind of crushing around you, and you just want some space. Just give me my space to think this through. And that's what David's prayer is. God, give me space so that I can think about this and understand this. We need to understand that God knows when things get too much for us. He knows when we are overwhelmed by the busyness of life. Uh, We need to understand and then approach him in prayer and say, Give me relief. Give me space. Now, here's something interesting about Psalm 4 for me personally. Uh, When I was a freshman in high school, uh, I was uh, uh, invited up to play uh, basketball on the varsity basketball team. Don't get so excited. I went to a high school of 110 students, and I was one of like 12 boys, so we all had to play. So it wasn't like a big deal. But my youth pastor at the time He challenged me, and he said to me, he said, read a psalm before every game. So that's what I did. And when I came to Psalm 4, we were in Meadville, Pennsylvania. 
And in Meadville, Pennsylvania, they had a guy that was six feet, seven inches tall and weighed about 300 pounds. He was huge. And that was the, the scout report, you know, all these kinds of things. Well, at that time, I was a freshman, and, you know, I was probably 5'10", completely meatless, right? I mean, you know, and I remember reading this, and in the King James, it literally says, Enlarge me, O Lord. And here I'm reading this right before this game. Now, we won the game handily. Uh, I was a 20-20 guy, you know. If we were down 20, I got to play, or if we were up 20, I got to play. And we were up 20, and I got to play that night. But that's the idea here. Things look so big and so large in front of us. And it's literally we're saying to God, make me bigger, make me sense bigger so that I can be able to handle the adversity that is there. I am overwhelmed by this. There is so much around me. The Apostle Paul had a very similar sense of what David is discouraged over. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The idea here is approaching God with an understanding that he is my righteousness. And notice what David does in verse 1 as well. He says, be merciful to me and hear my prayer. Be merciful to me. Have mercy on me. You know, David, God could have allowed Saul or whether it was Absalom in either situation, allow them to do whatever to ruin David's life. God owed David nothing. Uh, and so David says, thank you for having mercy. Uh, have mercy on me. Now remember the definitions, right? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Uh, as sinners, we deserve God's wrath and punishment, but in his mercy, he says, uh, I will save you. He concludes by saying, hear my prayer. Uh, you see, the best ear to have is the boss's ear, right? The person who is in charge, that's the ear you want to have. Yesterday, my family, we celebrated my mom's uh, 80th birthday, and we had um, 60 people at my house. And on Thursday, I called and uh, ordered chicken to be ready at 12.30 on Saturday. And I sent my son at 12.30 to pick it up. And so I'm standing at my house waiting for my son to bring the chicken that has been ordered, and my cell phone rings. And I answer my phone, and it's my son, and he says, Dad, they have no idea what I'm talking about. They have nothing. They said it's going to take 30 minutes for them to get the chicken ready. I said, you're kidding me. And he goes, don't worry, I've got it. And he hangs up the phone. Well, we waited. He got home at about 10 after 1. And when he got home, he explained to me what he did. And what he did was he said, the deli person tried to explain to me what was happening. And he says, I told them I need to speak to a manager. And he said, only the manager can make this thing right. I thought, that was smart, right? You go to the person who can make a difference. You go to the person who can make a change. 
And instead of just kind of complaining to his friends and to those around him, David approaches God, the righteous God, who is merciful to him, that hears his prayer, and he says, I need you. I need you. The second thing that is provided, or the second pattern that is established by David in Psalm 4, is that he assesses his problem. He explains it. Here's the assessment. Look at verse 2. In verse 2 he says this, How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Here is David moving from the court of God into kind of an explanation of what is happening around him, the men and the people that are around him. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? You see, the time of this passage, uh, David fleeing from Saul or him fleeing from Absalom, the time of this passage, David is, is experiencing shame. He's no longer the, the anointed one going to the throne in the case with Saul, or he's no longer the king of Israel. Instead, he's shamed by all of this. The glory that he would have enjoyed in those positions is, is gone. And he's asking, you know, how long is this going to last? You see, as believers, oftentimes we find ourselves having to deal with slander or gossip against ourselves or others. Or, or perhaps there may be more here that David's talking about. When David's talking about his glory, his glory comes from God. And so perhaps he's tired of people talking bad about God and saying, look, David, look at your life. What a mess it is. What kind of God do you serve? So David is experiencing this. And notice what else he says. He says, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? The idea of delusions here is this, these empty schemes. Or how long will you labor without any kind of benefits? David is talking about delusions, false gods. Very apropos for the time that we find ourselves living in, right? David says, how long will you do this? How long will you seek false gods, listen to the lies and stories of false prophets? These are things that are happening around David. And notice what he says in verse 2. He says, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods and know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself? The Lord will hear when I call to him. David was chosen from among many. Remember the story of David's choosing? Uh, David had all of his brothers And all of the brothers were brought in, and Samuel looked at them. And Samuel said, are you sure there's not someone else? And so they went and got David, and Samuel said, this is the guy. And that's the passage where uh, we find out that Samuel says, you know, God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And David had a righteous heart. And David is reminding himself of his own calling and saying, God has chosen me. Uh, People are delusional, and they're saying these things, but I remind myself of who I am and who I belong to. How do you feel when people around you are taking hold of the delusions and the false gods? How do you feel? Are you able to step back and say, thank God for what he has done, and I'm grateful for that? Or do you say, well, at least they believe something. (laughs) At least they're into something, right? Uh, Delusional. We find ourselves in a day and age where people are delusional, believing that politics is the answer. We find ourselves in a day and age where false gods, doctrine is set aside and we just will chase whatever it is that is there instead of adhering to the the quality and the supremacy of scriptures in our hearts. Delusions. David is assessing his problem. He says, the Lord hears me when I call to him. He says, my prayers will be heard. David says in verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, 
The Lord will hear when I call to him. The Lord will hear me when I call to him. You see, what is guaranteed here is that God hears us. God hears us. And we have to be careful here, don't we? Uh, I have a friend that is very close to me that is right now away from God. And his argument for being away from God is God never answers my prayers. He says, I will ask God for these things and God doesn't give them to me. And so therefore, how can I believe in him? And so he is away from God. I'm, I'm sure some of you have heard this experience before. You see, when we say that God will hear our prayer, we are not giving you a guarantee for a shopping spree on Amazon. That's not what he's saying. And oftentimes we're mistaken for that. You forget that prayer is not just about uh, asking for something, but it's about establishing a relationship. God hears you. That's the guarantee. The guarantee is that he's going to hear what it is that you're saying. It's about relating to him having a personal relationship to him. We approach God not just with will you or can you do this for me, but we approach in a relational way knowing him. We just recently at the school where I teach, we we did Fiddler on the Roof. Have you ever seen that play or seen it on TV? I I was in that when I was in high school. That's how long ago that was. But uh, the lead character is Tevia, and he's dealing with his daughters, trying to marry them off, and they all want to do crazy things. And if you remember, throughout the, the, the movie or if you've seen the play, Tevye is always looking up and talking to God. He is always acting as though God is right there and God is interested in what he has to say. And that's the way we should live our lives. We know that God is there, that he is present, and that he will hear us. Prayer is not just asking. It's communing. It's having a relationship. It's being able to say to God, you know, there are delusional fools around me. Or there are false gods that are being celebrated by my friends, and I need you, God, to hear what I'm saying. And so the guarantee is a relationship, and that he is going to hear what is being said. Imagine, if prayer is just about asking, imagine in the closest relationship you have, like, for example, with my wife. Imagine if all I ever did to my wife was, will you do this for me? Will you give me this? Will you do this? Can you? If that's all I ever did with my wife, if that's all I ever said to her, what kind of relationship is that? You see, what happens is, as a result of communing together, then things happen, and we understand what it is that God will do. So David is encouraging us to understand relationship. Look at verse 4. He says, uh, tremble and do not sin. Literally, the word tremble is in your anger. You see, David was so worked up over what was happening that he's trembling. You know, he's so worked up. And he says, go ahead and be angry, but do not sin. And then he writes, when you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. How about that? You're free to be angry this morning, right? You're free to get worked up about something. David is worked up about his circumstance, but he's not sinning. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says the same thing, right? Be angry and sin not. You say, how is that even possible? Well, think about Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, remember when he went into the temple and he saw these people trading and cheating and doing all these things, what did he do? He's flipping over tables, he's pulling a cord and chasing them out. Was he angry? Absolutely. Did he sin? No. The reason he didn't sin is because he was doing what was, he he, he was angry about what was displeasing God. That's what he was angry about. 
You see, we need to understand that our anger is righteous when we are angered over things that God is angry over. We sin when we blow our anger out of proportion to what the issue is, right? So David says, be angry, but don't sin. Too often we forget the emotion of being angry. It's okay to be angry with what's happening, but to not sin and to keep the perspective that we want to be angry because it's not honoring what God has done. He says, be angry and sin not. And then he says, search your hearts when you're on your bed. You see, that's what happens in the evening, right? The approaching evening, we, we, we all of a sudden begin to gear down, slow down a little bit, and we're quiet. And what begins to go through your mind? What begins to happen? David is not saying, you know, you should be brooding and worrying about the past and all the wrongs that people have done to you. That's not what's happening here. He says, search your hearts, and when you are on your beds, begin to understand what it is that's happening. Allow your heart to be overwhelmed with an understanding that it's the mercy and grace of God that has gotten me through this day. Think about what it's like when you go to bed. When you go to bed, is it uh, turn on the TV? Turn up the radio? What is it? Is it taking that moment to have confidence that God is at work in my life? He says in uh, verse 4 as well, he says, Be silent. Be silent. This is obviously not written in the 21st century, right? This is so difficult in 21st century America to be silent. Part of the reason why there can be silence is because of the relationship. Now, again, think about uh, when you first started courting. Like, for example, when I first started courting my wife, okay, I asked my wife out on a date, and we get into the car, and we are driving together, and I am talking like I'm on speed, right? There cannot be any silence. <laughs> and I'm just jabbering and asking her questions and talking and talking and talking. And when there's a lull, I feel guilty, right? It's like, oh, great, I've I, I got to come up with something else. And that's the way it was early in the relationship. Now we can go from here where we live to Indianapolis to visit my two sons in Indianapolis. And sometimes we will go almost the entire time and not say a word to each other. Is that because you're angry? No, it's because we've, we've matured in our relationship and the awkward silence is not there. Instead, I know what's on her mind. She knows what's on mine. If we need to talk, we'll talk. If she's okay, I'm okay. And there's a silence up there. And sometimes that's what happens in our relationship with God. You see, we, we can't stop and just think. We can't stop and close down because this is very awkward. It's so quiet in here. Somebody say something. Somebody do something. But as we mature in our relationship with God, all of a sudden we can find ourselves taking time to listen, to be still. That's what he says, and remember in Psalm 46, verse 10, he says, Be still. Literally, take your hands off. Trust in what God's doing. Rest in him. Be silent in what is happening. In verse 5, he says, Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Verse 5 comes as a result of verse 4. You see, we realize that uh, who God is, we're trusting in him, and then verse 5 happens. We offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. That's what he's asking us to do. You see, as you are approaching the night and you're thinking things through and you realize what a righteous God is, 
uh, and how merciful and gracious he's been to me, then now I am taking my prayers to him. And you see, the, the things that we take to him are righteous. He's a righteous God, so we take righteous requests to him. We don't take things that are obtuse and out of his will. We take what we know that he is a, a part of and understanding, and we bring them to him. Offering sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Now, sometimes what happens is that we, we stand up here, I do, I share the word of God with you, and I, I become a, a YouTube guy. Do you, do you understand that? Let, let me explain. Uh, I have an upstairs bathroom, and the toilet in the back, you know, the tank in the back, was leaking. And so you'd fill it up, and then it would slowly leak down. So I said something to my wife about it, and my wife is in Wisconsin with her family, and my father-in-law is the king of repairs. My father-in-law can fix anything. You know, I mean, he's just that kind of guy. And he says to my wife, oh, that's something Drew can fix, right? So what I do is I go to YouTube. And I go to YouTube and I type in and search. You know, my father-in-law explained what the problem was, so I type that in. And uh, a 21-minute YouTube video comes up. And so I watch that 21-minute YouTube video. Four days later, my tank is fixed, right? That's how it is for me. Uh, the first thing the guy said was, you use a 14-millimeter wrench to loosen the bolts that are attached to the tank. I got my 14-millimeter wrench, and the screw just twirled. And the reason it did was because it was so corroded. So I ended up getting a torch and burning it off. That's what happens. You know, we stand up here and we say these things, trust God, approach him, and, all, and then all of a sudden it's not that easy. It takes work. It takes effort. I'm not trying to create the sense that this is a 21-minute YouTube video. Instead, I'm hoping to create in you a heart that says, you know what, this is a part of the process that I need to go through in order to be who God wants me to be. David says, in adversity, approach God in prayer. In adversity, assess the problem. And finally, in verses 6 through 8, he says, acknowledge the victory. Acknowledge the victory. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when the grain and new wine abound. David is bringing us all into this, right? He, he says in verse 6, he says, um, many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Bringing us into this. Who can show us any good? You see, there are those that are grumbling and grousing and they're skeptic and they want something. They want God to give them something. This is a temporal fix. They're looking for something temporary that I can touch or feel. So give me something. And David's saying, man, we would just love to see the light of your glory. <laughs> Let your face shine upon us. And that's how we can experience what we need to. Uh, but the grousers and the grumblers, they say, no, let's improve our circumstance. Let's make things better for us. Please understand something about circumstances. When you go from one circumstance to the other, do you know what is the common denominator to those two circumstances? You are. So whatever you are in this circumstance, if the circumstance is different but you are the same, guess what's going to happen in that circumstance? The same thing that was going on in the other one. 
You see, too many times we, we, this is what we want. God, just create something different for me. Give me a temporary fix. And David says, no, let the light of the Lord shine in my heart to transform me, to give me an eternal understanding of what's happening. In verse 7, look what David says. He says, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when the grain and new wine abound. Now, if you understand anything about the, the Israel and their culture at that time, uh, this idea of land and blessing were linked together. And so when there's all kinds of grain and there's new wine, everything's awesome. Everything's wonderful. But what happens to wine and grain? They dissipate. They disappear. And David said, listen, I have joy that is greater than when we had all that stuff. He's saying there is something in my heart that is greater. God puts inside us a joy. There's an old hymn. And it was written by Barney Warren. And here's one of the chorus. It says like this. It says, I have found his grace is all complete. He supplieth every need. While I sit and learn at Jesus' feet, I am free. Yes, free indeed. And then the chorus goes like this. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Full of glory. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Only the half has never yet been told. You see, we forget that we're not about the temporal, we're about the eternal. We are not about now, we're about then. Okay? Sometimes we get so locked into what's going on around us, we say, yeah, this is it. This is it. Instead of acknowledging, we win in the end. As believers, we will experience the, the blessed rescue and delivery of a new life and enjoy his kingdom. Uh, we need an eternal perspective on life, don't we? This idea of a temporal fix, sure, but it's temporary. We want the eternal fix. Forgive me for too many personal illustrations, but I I have two sons. Like I said, one of them went to uh, Butler. He's there now, spending his summer there. And at Christmas, he came home. Well, you know, I hadn't seen much of him, and he came home. And, of course, what do I want to do? Spend every moment with him, right? So I was a little bit miffed when he decided that he would spend time with his friends. So anyway, there was a little bit of friction there. And finally, I I got him in the car and we were alone and we're driving. And I said to him, son, I said, there is nobody on earth that loves you more than I do. And I said, I want to be with you every single moment because I haven't seen you. And I said, I've been a jerk about it. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be a jerk about it anymore. And I said, the reason I'm not going to be a jerk about it anymore is because I'm seeing it in eternal parameters. You see, I may not be with you during the three weeks that you come back from Butler, but I'm going to be with you for all of eternity. So the three weeks I might miss here, I'm going to get an entire eternity with you. So buckle up. We're going to be together. Eternal perspective, not a temporary fix. An eternal perspective. Allow the Lord to give us that focus. Notice what David says to us. He says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Simultaneously, he is unafraid and asleep. I am in a better state, David's saying, and I'm able to rest you see, David says this. He, he's literally telling us that it's better to feel God's favor for one hour than to experience a temporary fix that seems to be longer. 
David rests on the reality of who God is. This is an act of the will. David says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's an act, a commitment. I will do this. David is saying, you know what? You have brought me out into a spacious place. You have taken me out and given me relief from my distress. And so now I am able to to rest in an understanding of who you are and what you've accomplished in my life. Uh, He is able to find peace and rest, acknowledging the victory for you alone, Lord, for you alone. Think about how it is that your life is when you go to bed at night. When you are tossing and turning and your mind is racing from one event to another that you need to do, how about David? I will. And saying, I will, Lord, as I lie here in my bed, let go and understand that you have purpose and plans and tomorrow will go again. The Lord is sufficient for David. There is a restlessness until we find our rest in him. Uh, St. Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. David is not about the temporary. He is about the eternal. He is about knowing that, that there are things that I can do, but there is something beyond this. Acknowledging and understanding the victory that will be his. This past May, our school does an intercession We do it in January for three school years, and then we do it in May for one, and we go back to January. This year it was in May. And what we do is we we kind of uh, give experiences to our students so they can travel and do various things, whether it's a mission trip or whether it's a, a project or learn something, whatever different than a classroom experience. I take a group of students to Chicago, and when we go to Chicago, uh, we tour the city of Chicago and do touristy kinds of things, you know, go up and um, the John Hancock building and all that kind of stuff. And then we work at an after-school ministry called By the Hand. And the lady that started By the Hand, her name is Danita Travis. And the way that I found out about her is I was listening to a sermon being preached by Erwin Lutzer, who was the pastor of Moody Church. And in that sermon, he made a passing reference to Danita Travis and By the Hand and how she has started this ministry. So I went online and I looked her up and I... Um, sent her an email, and she sent me her testimony. And her testimony was this. She and her husband were in Chicago, living in Chicago, and they were on the brink of this multi-million dollar advertising agency. Uh, And she said, we couldn't have been more successful. And she said, but we decided to go on a retreat, and we went on this retreat, and while we were at this retreat... Uh, someone introduced the, wor- the, the, the verse in John 10 that talks about the thief comes but to steal, but God has come to give you life and life more abundantly. And she said, when I came back from that, she says, that's what I wanted. She said, I wanted a life that was more abundant, more than just the temporary in essence. And as a result, she, she started in the basement of Moody Church. She started one night a week having kids come into her little room and she had a friend and she would teach them how to read and her friend would teach them ballerina kind of things, both boys and girls. And that little basement kind of a deal has grown in the last 10 years from the basement of Moody Church to five locations throughout Chicago and a school, a charter school that they have started. And let me try to paint the picture here. She does not open her doors and say, Anybody want to, you can come. 
Instead, she goes to the Chicago public schools and finds the students with the lowest test scores and says, we have a bus that will pick them up. We would like to enter into a contract. And those are the kids that she brings, teaching them how to read, giving them a meal, giving them vision tests and medical and all kinds of things. It has just exploded from this temporary kind of thing to an eternal kind of thing. And we go and we work with her. I think she rests well at night, knowing what it is that God would have us do. That's what David is teaching us, to approach him respectfully, to assess our problem carefully, and to acknowledge the victory that he brings to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you so much for your love that allows us to be in a place such as this. And Lord, we are grateful that your word is sufficient to help those with whom we are able to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.